Welcome to Faithful Economy, a podcast of the Association of Christian Economists. We host conversations about important economic and moral questions. I'm your host, Steve McMullen of Hope College. Today, I get to have a conversation with Art Carden from Samford University. Art is an excellent scholar and a great popularizer of economic ideas. The occasion for our conversation is a new book that he has just published with the great economic historian Deidre McCloskey. The title is Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, How the Bourgeois Deal Enriched the World. This book grows out of McCloskey's three-volume series on the bourgeois era, but is aimed at a more popular audience. The book makes an entertaining and broad defense of liberalism writ large, both on material and spiritual grounds. It is a provocative and thought-provoking book, particularly if you're in the habit of thinking about economics only in material terms. Art Carden is a professor of economics at Samford University, senior fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research, the Beacon Center of Tennessee, and research fellow at the Independent Institute and at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. He's written numerous articles and chapters about economic history, Walmart, economic freedom, and numerous other topics. And now to our conversation. Art Carden, thanks for joining us on this podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk about the book that you have coming out with Deidre McCloskey. Sorry, it just came out and I've been able to take a look at it and read it. And it is it is a delightful read. What I'd like to do here is to start by giving listeners a sense of how ambitious the book is. You're covering a lot of ground. So to do that, let me offer a description in my words of what you guys are trying to say. And you can tell me what I'm missing. I think the book is kind of a jovial attempt to tell the story of the whole modern world. You argue that the world is getting rich, that it is good that we are getting rich, and that we're getting rich because we have embraced liberalism. Even more, you want to define liberalism as a kind of culture, a set of ideas and a set of ethics, as much as it is a set of institutions. Along the way, you respond to a number of different pessimistic stories about the past, about our present, and about the future. You argue that the past was mostly pretty bad, the modern era is somewhat better, and that the future will probably be better still. Does this capture your thesis? And also, while you're at it, since the word is so loaded, can you talk a little bit about how you think about liberalism and in what sense you guys are using that term? So you're right. This is a very ambitious book. A professor or a, a, a scholar, Professor McCloskey's stature is well positioned to try to write the grand unification theory of the humanities and social sciences, which is in some sense what her project has been. Uh, she's kind of brought me along for the ride, and I'm kind of going to be spending the rest of my career really digging into this deeply. But yeah, I, th- I think you're right. We don't fully appreciate how radically different the world we inhabit is from the world that our ancestors inhabited. Pretty much everybody used to be poor. Now, some people are very, very rich, and everybody's getting richer. I mean, such that world poverty, world poverty is falling like a stone. And we think that, as we say, if we keep our ethical wits about us, we'll continue to get richer going forward. The question about liberalism is interesting because it's kind of like a question about defining capitalism. In reading a lot of this literature, I've, I've come to be saddened by how loose we are with words from time to time. Liberalism, we argue, and I think you're correct here, is a set of ethical rules and ethical norms in addition to a set of institutions. So uh, I was just on a podcast called Don't Tread on Anyone. And I think of liberalism as, as a philosophy that says don't tread on anyone. It says, you know, leave people alone. On one hand, we have things like free markets and the right to do more or less anything voluntary. Again, not that, any, not that doing anything voluntary is, is morally enriching or anything like that. 
but also a culture of live and let live, where we kind of follow Thomas Jefferson, who in referring to people believing things he didn't believe and vice versa, he says, well, it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. That makes a lot of sense. With the kind of breadth of what you guys are going at, if you were to tell someone in a couple of sentences how it is that liberalism has resulted in this great wealth, can you draw those pieces together for us? Because that seems to be a really important linchpin for your book. Absolutely. We got rich because we allowed liberty and dignity for entrepreneurs and innovators. We started to value doing new things. We started to value innovation. The, the word itself came to describe something desirable rather than rank heresy. And so now we live in a world in which you know, everybody wants to be a disruptor. They want to disrupt this industry or that industry or the other, the other industry. We've created a world in which people have sort of enough liberty to do that. If you ever try to get a business license for anything weird, you know that that's not entirely the case. But again, we, we extol and venerate people who come up with new ways to solve really important, really fundamental problems. Again, where the heroes are not just gods and kings and major noble characters in Shakespeare, say, but they're people like Jack Welch or they're people like Stephen Covey or they're people like Steve Jobs or they're people like, it kind of fill in the blank here. We live in a world in which people want to grow up and be CEOs and in which we don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. What I'd like to do now is try to give readers a taste of all of the different folks that you try to argue with in this book, because it's really fairly impressive. In crafting this kind of grand theory, you take it upon yourselves to sort of push back lots and lots of different competing stories about the past, the present, and the future. So the way I'd like to do this is to offer a number of different arguments against your thesis. And I've pulled these, you know, as I was reading the book and as I was thinking about uh, both who you were arguing against and also who might disagree with you, but for slightly different reasons as I was reading. What I'd like you to do is just try to respond and you can respond from the book or from your own perspective, however you like. But I think this will give a sense of, of where you guys go, at least with the first two sections of the book. All right, so let's start with what might be a softball. Uh, mm. You say the world is getting richer, right? And of course, we have a lot of data that we could reference for that. But isn't it the case that it's only a few that are getting rich? Inequality mm. is booming and poverty remains. Isn't that correct? That is factually false, I would argue, for a handful of reasons. But you raise, you raise what I think is a really good point and something that we try to stress in the book. If the capitalist story, and there's another word that we really don't like very much, capitalism, as Joseph Schumpeter, as Joseph Schumpeter kind of characterized it, if, if capitalism or innovism, as we're calling it, simply meant more silk stockings for the Queen of England, it would not have inspired us. It wouldn't have inspired Deirdre to write a sort of three-volume defense of what she calls the bourgeois era. And it wouldn't have inspired us to write this book. We care about the liberal ideal and we care about the liberal society precisely because it's been the least of these among us who have benefited the most. And we go on for ages and pages and pages and pages about this. One example comes from an experience my wife and I had a few years ago where we went to, and we talk about this in the book, we went to see Les Miserables in Birmingham. Love Les Miserables. I love the book. I love the play or the musical. Really excited about getting to go see it. And flipping through the program, and there's an ad from a local charity saying there are women like Fontaine in Birmingham. And of course, Fontaine is Fontaine is the tragic character in in Les Mis. Yeah, a member of the the underclass of the underclass. I mean, really, really, really horrible life. And it says you know the median uh, the median household income uh, for a family in Birmingham, headed by a mother, a single mother with two children, is twenty nine thousand to thirty thousand dollars. 
And so in my sort of cold economist way, I look at this and say, no, no, there aren't. There are no women like Fontaine in Birmingham. There are people, there are women in Birmingham, obviously, who have much harder lives than I do. That's for certain. But to say that they live lives like Fontaine is, it's, it's hyperbole, obviously. And I think the people, the people who are writing it understand that it, that's hyperbole, but it's hyperbole that doesn't work because it's just sort of completely inaccurate. So, so if you take the, the median household income of one of these households that the charity talks about, adjust, do all the inflation adjustments and stuff like that, it's about five times the per capita income in France in 1820, which is around the time that Les Mis is set. So we have unbelievable improvements in standards of living. And again, not for people like you and me, though yeah, I'm sure that you're I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure that your, your your ancestors were probably not you know not royalty uh, as uh, mine weren't, but for people like Fontaine, for the people on the margins of society who have access to untold riches relative to our ancestors. With respect to inequality, one thing that puzzles us is why people seem to care so much about within country inequality. If you look at the United States, like globally, if you live in the United States, you're probably one of the richest five to ten percent of people on on the planet Earth. If you're one of the you're one of the richest one percent of people who's ever walked the face of the planet Earth, so discussing inequality or worrying about inequality in the U.S. is worrying about the difference between the historically and geographically super duper rich and the historically and geographically merely super rich, which I'm not really sure that's terribly important, and it obscures a bigger story, which is the growth of a global middle class, particularly with increasing development in India and China. So I think we're getting we're getting richer. And ultimately, we're getting more equal. I think you guys do a, a pretty good job, particularly with the, the sort of sweeping arc of history story about poverty and inequality. And I think it is worth mentioning every time we get the opportunity that global inequality is actually decreasing. It's surprising how difficult it has been for that fact to kind of seep into the popular consciousness. But let me push let me push you on the domestic poverty question. So here's a kind of a more specific, narrower contention because you guys don't spend much time dealing with specific evidence about poverty in particular countries or something of the sort. You're spending a lot of time with a bigger story. So you argue everyone is getting richer and that even the poor are generally better off. Branko Milanovic, who you cite among others, uh, has documented pretty well that the poor in relatively rich countries have gained only a very little in the last 40 or 50 years. In fact, there's good evidence that among the poor in the U.S., most of the gains in standard of living have been largely due to more generous government benefits and a more favorable tax code. So isn't it fair to say that the world is getting richer, but that there is a, an important group of people in countries like the U.S. that aren't seeing the gains? Hey, well, so I'll see you Milanovic and raise you Hans Rosling. We have one of the chapters of the book describes a bunch of the a bunch of the statistical work that Hans Rosling has done in his book Factfulness. And even if we just look at the last 40 years, last 50 years, we see again that there have been pretty substantial gains, not necessarily on income margins, even, but for again, the the world's relatively poor. So I don't have the I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I, I turned one year old in 1980 when some small fraction of the world's one year olds and indeed the United States one year olds, I would imagine, had been vaccinated. And now it's nearly universal. I mean, um, nearly universal uh, within within you know, a few dozen percentage points, maybe, but much, 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 much better than it was in uh, than it was in 1980. Second, we will acknowledge that there has been a productivity slowdown since say so 1973 seems to be the magic year for all of this it's true that measured income inequality of course has increased in part due to 
generous or in, in part due to favorable tax code, generous government benefits, and things like that. Uh, and here we we rely on it. Uh, we rely on a an argument that actually my advisor in graduate school made, John Nye, that as societies get richer in monetary terms, money income becomes less and less and less useful as a measure of truly really meaningful inequality. Where, you know, again, we talk about a $600,000 bottle of Macallan Scotch, which as we were, as we were, were writing was the most expensive bottle of whiskey in the world. And we thought, you know, is it really that much better than a case of Bud Light? Is it really that much better than sort of the cheap bottom shelf, bottom shelf stuff? They're probably pretty close substitutes for one another. And just to kind of digress, to kind of digress a little bit. Something that we touch on a little bit and don't really fully explore in the way that I would, I would, I would ultimately like to concerns the ways in which in a very, very rich society, we get to sort of fulfill some of our highest artistic ideals. My guess is if you're the, if you're working at McAllen and you're one of their tippy top people doing this, like you're probably not making the $600,000 bottle of scotch just to make money. You're trying to perfect the art of whiskey uh, or something to that effect. And we're able to do that in a world where we have sort of more or less insane riches. An example we do use in the book though, and again, we're, we're more interested in the much broader sweep of things. So how things, have, how things have changed from roughly the middle of the 18th century to roughly the last couple of decades. So imagine you go to a King's feast 500 years ago, 800 years ago, 1000 years ago, 1500 years ago, which is kind of relevant. I just finished reading King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table with, my, with, with our youngest. And, keep trying to help them understand how our standards of living are so much better than, than those of Arthur and his knights. But you compare what would have been on King Arthur's table to what you can get at Golden Corral for 15 bucks. If you go to a restaurant like Golden Corral, you notice that the, the clientele is not you know, the Koch brothers. It's not Larry Page. It's not Bill Gates. It's not Steve Jobs. It's not the Clintons. It's not people with, with very, very long family names and distinguished histories. It tends to be, again, probably from, from the, the lower part of the, of the income distribution, lower, lower to upper middle of the income distribution. So the, these, these benefits of economic growth in the form of like what you can get at Golden Corral for trifling sums, these these have accrued again primarily primarily to the poor. I think it is really important as we try to make progress on these questions of poverty and inequality to do just a lot better thinking about what we mean when we talk about a standard of living and what what kind of goods are essential and what kind of goods aren't essential and how we measure these things. And of course, we economists are not are not as well equipped to do that well. As, as we could be because of our, our preference for aggregating things. But I do, I do think your point is a good one on that. So, so broadly speaking, you guys are writing a kind of favorable story about, about wealth and poverty uh, for the whole world, basically for the last few hundred years. You also are optimistic about a lot of other things, though. And there's a, there's a kind of a Steven Pinker optimism that comes through in the first part of the book, but also an optimism or at least, at least a moderated optimism about the environment. So let me pick one area of environmental concern that I know a little bit better than others and challenge you with this one. So on the environment, you argue that the solution to environmental problems is increasing global wealth and innovation, and that things are generally getting better. Now, in some ways they are. I can easily you know, quote you some statistics on these kinds of things as well. And yet the modern world has not been good 
for some environmental things in a, in a pretty dramatic way. So let's talk about animals, since that's what I've written about. We probably have about one-eighth of the wild mammals that existed prior to human expansion. So there's been a, a massive displacement. And then extinctions seem to be happening at somewhere between 10 and 1,000 times the natural rate. And a majority of those extinctions seem to have la- happened in the last 100 years. Mm-hmm. Estimating that is, is very difficult, and we could get into that, but it's probably not the main point of this conversation. We could talk about industrial animal agriculture as well and our treatment of animals. It doesn't it seem, though, that a world with billions of rich humans, mm-hmm. at least with this kind of social organization, just isn't going to be a world in which non-human animals come out ahead at all? So that's a really good question, and that's fascinating. I, I saw this in the questions, and my first thought was, okay, I, I don't really know that much about <laughs> mammalian extinction or anything like that. So I kind of wanted to say, all right, let, let's sort of skip over that one. But by God, let, let's hit it head on because you know we just got a dog not that long ago, and so we're and we we eat a lot of you know a lot of the meat we get, for example, is, is we try to go very high quality and and look for stuff that fits where, where the animals aren't sort of like taunted and then beaten to death, right? That's, that's um, admirable. Yeah. So, so it's true that it's true that not every change is going to be unambiguously good for everyone. And we try to make the point that even in our sort of liberal, flourishing, high income, everybody's literate society, there are going to be some people who will slip through the cracks. As you're pointing out here, probably some species that will slip through the cracks. But the cracks, we argue, are a lot smaller. And with respect to, with respect to things like, like mammalian extinction, kind of my cold-hearted answer is, well, you know, they don't bear the image of God. We do. And fundamentally, if we bear the image of God, then we're the ones who are really important. But my soft-hearted answer, my soft-hearted reply to my hard-hearted answer would be, yeah, but we're, we're charged with stewarding creation. So what do we do about that? Then my sort of unsatisfying middle response to kind of both of these, my, my hard heart and my soft heart is well by god let coast be coast let's look for let's look for problems in the structure of property rights making it so that we have some of these problems and some of these issues moreover and and here here again this is is something i've not thought a ton about it's just kind of like one of those things that keeps you not keeps you up at night periodically what about the the number of sort of like the number of cows the number of chickens etc who would not have existed at all were it not for yeah, or not for industrial agriculture or something like that. What's the moral status of that? And there, I'm, I'm not, I'm not qualified as a philosopher, frankly, to to really speak into it. Where I get optimistic, though, is in the fact that environmental amenities are kind of a normal good. Here again, this is this is a, a sort of a prognosis or prediction, not necessarily something I'm 100% confident on. But as people get richer, as people get richer, they come to appreciate environmental amenities more. And they come to worry about things like species loss and biodiversity and, you know, things like that. And it makes me wonder what kinds of resources we can look forward to that might be pushed towards species conservation, where we are on the environmental Kuznets curve or the species extinction Kuznets curve, you might say. I haven't seen Jurassic World or uh, any of these movies. I, I, I did read and see Jurassic Park many, many moons ago. Part of me does say, well, a lot of these we can pro- we might be able to bring back. Again, with a caveat that I can, I can also, I've seen enough science fiction to imagine that going very, very poorly. 
Well, this is probably not going to make you more concerned about species extinction, but there's a significant number of our lost species that are tropical beetles. So mm. I just don't see a market for uh, for resurrecting them all and putting them in a theme park. But, you know, it's difficult to predict the future. Well, let's put that aside. I, I think it's probably would have been fairer if I, you know, challenged you with something about climate change or, or something of the sort. But but I do think that your general optimism is admirable as a, as a general kind of, of, of approach to social sciences and the broad sweep of history. I tend to share it. But I do get I do get really concerned about some of these issues where it does look like there might be a an essential conflict between sort of trade-off between humans and the environment, among other things. But that's probably a topic for another time, because like I said, you get you try to bat down a whole bunch of different critics. So let's move on to another one. So you argue, when you move into the second section of, of your book, you're trying to argue not just that the world is getting better, mm-hmm. but that it's getting better for a particular reason. And that is because we've embraced this liberal order. Now, in order to make that argument, you have to respond to a bunch of other stories about why it is that we're getting rich. And in particular, I think one of the most powerful and important stories that we're trying to grapple with right now is this this story that says our wealth is largely a response or a result of of oppression and exploitation globally, Uh, colonialism, slavery, racism, exploitative trade, and you can go down the list. So you argue, though, that exploitation and oppression not that they didn't happen, of course they did, but that they're not the source of modern wealth. But how can that be? Surely the scale of exploitation and colonialism and slavery must have had a big impact. I mean, those countries that are the richest today, many of them, or many of us, I should say, were the ones that were on top of the political order in the colonial period. It's not as if the ones that were on the bottom of the heap in the colonial period, and okay, now I'm thinking of counterexamples, but that those are the ones that have, have been the richest. So how do you respond to this big question of colonialism? That's a really good question. So you have colonialism, slavery, and imperialism are sort of the, the these three amazing sins that have been committed. And I, w- I want to be absolutely clear that th- th- there's no defense of any of them. Like there, there's no economic defense. There's no moral defense. There's no, these were unambiguously bad in every possible way. But that doesn't explain why Europe and its overseas extensions got rich. The slavery story specifically, and so a lot of my, my original work is in economic history, then I got sort of sidetracked into a bunch of stuff I did on Walmart, and uh, now kind of did, wrote this book with Deirdre, and, and now I've got a mountain of books on my, on my desk to return back to the kind of Southern economic history work I was doing, kind of in response to this new history of capitalism literature, arguing that, capital, that say, slavery was indispensable to capitalism or, or indispensable to American prosperity. And among the reasons, there are a lot of problems with that story, and it generalizes. First, the, the, the history is wrong, or at least the, the timing is wrong. If slavery per se, if slavery per se were, were sufficient to cause a great enrichment, then the great enrichment would have happened thousands of years ago and not in Europe and North America. Uh, or it might have happened in North America, but because of indigenous tribes enslaving one another. Or it would have happened, or if it was the slave trade, well, the Indian Ocean slave trade and the Trans-Saharan slave trades, these were also enormous. Why didn't they cause a great enrichment? If you look at sort of the, the export of Africans out of Africa and into the Americas, the United States was a relatively small receiver of Africans relative to, to, the, to the Caribbean and Brazil especially. And yet this is where everybody got rich. So again, that, that, that doesn't quite work out. The timing is bad in part because slavery has existed for virtually all of human history. 
And the geography is bad because slavery has existed virtually everywhere. So if slavery per se were sufficient to explain the great enrichment, then it would have happened somewhere else and it would have happened a long time ago. If it's slavery plus liberal capitalism, then I think that kind of gives away the game. And you score one from McCloskey and Cardin here because we're you know, we're arguing that it was it was the liberalism that was the new thing and not the slavery. It's important to remember two things. That first, position in a political hierarchy is not the same thing as material prosperity. So it is true. And I was an undergraduate at the University of Alabama, where in the in the late '90s, early 2000s, early 2000s, I remember the vestiges of everything that's ever been wrong with the South. Seeing this manifested, it's uh, seeing it manifested, and you can have a social hierarchy without prosperity. Um, so it might, it, so racism, oppression, et cetera, might determine where people are in the social hierarchy, but on net, make everybody make everybody worse off materially than they uh, than they otherwise would have been. Second, it's a mistake, I think, to conflate this set of institutions or horrible practices made some people very rich with these enriched entire societies. So Cecil Rhodes, for example, probably much richer, almost certainly much richer as a result of colonialism than if he hadn't had uh, if he hadn't had colonialism. King Leopold of Belgium. Similar story. But again, just because we have colonies, empires, slaves that enrich some specific people doesn't necessarily mean that they're enriching entire societies. And indeed, there's a lot of evidence in economic history that the rate of return on the British Empire was negative. Britain actually, the British actually incurred a cost to maintain their empire. It wasn't actually good for them economically. Okay, let me follow up on this. So I'm trying to think through different ways in which you could conclude that our wealth is implicated by a history of slavery. Absolutely. So the argument that I that I think I'm hearing from you is that we we might have been just as wealthy if we hadn't had slavery. We'd be richer, and, I think. Or, or, or richer. So let me give you an analogy then. Let, let's say there's a, there's a really brilliant entrepreneur uh-huh. and he has 10 opportunities before him and all of them are gonna make him filthy rich. And he happens to choose the one that is highly illegal and immoral, and it makes him rich. Would we say that that choice to do the highly illegal, immoral thing and getting rich that way, that his riches are not due to that particular immoral choice just because any other option would have also made him rich? Like, isn't there a sense that we can say that if there's a massive amount of wealth that's that's causally connected to, in, in some loose sense, connected to the slave trade, that that is implicated even if we, had, we would have been just as rich without the slave trade? Okay, so so that that's that's where we have to I think be very very careful about precisely what's being argued. Yeah, I'm trying to put in precise terms what I think what the argument I might be hearing from the left is, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah, and and, and I appreciate that. The argument we're making is not slavery and colonialism. Colonialism were okay because there are a lot of ways for society to industrialize. The argument we're making is that slavery, slavery, colonialism, and imperialism were neither necessary nor sufficient for a great enrichment. And the argument that's coming out of what, what Deidre calls the King Cotton School, so the neo-King Cotton School of historical analysis, is that we would not have gotten a great enrichment, we would not have gotten an industrial revolution without specifically African slavery. Okay. And I think that's false. Now then, in terms of what is implicated, in terms of whether or not our current sort of pattern of wealth is implicated in slavery, I think it absolutely is. How you untie that, how you untie that is difficult, obviously, but I think it's something, it's something that's worth doing. The yeah. analogy that uh, I heard from my friend Walter Block, actually, who who sort of convinced me of the, the likely propriety of reparations, is said, so imagine that you steal somebody's watch. 
And then you pass that watch down to your ancestors. And then the person from whom you stole the watch, their ancestors say, hey, that was my grandfather's watch or my multi-great-grandfather's watch. The, the watch was gotten illicitly and should be remanded to the descendants of the, the, descendants of the person who was expropriated. He argues, and I think there's a, there's a very strong case to be made for this, that there's not a fundamental difference between stealing somebody's watch and enslaving someone and expropriating the product of their labor. Where this gets sticky, again, is in identifying who owes what to whom, how much is owed. And uh, one of my favorite economists, Julian Simon, actually worked with an economic historian, Larry Neal, in the mid-70s to actually write a paper trying to calculate the bill for, re for reparations that appeared in the Review of Black Political Economy. And if you adjust it for inflation, like it'll, it's, it's, it's substantial. <laughs> it's a lot of money. Even if you can solve all those problems, there becomes, the, there becomes this much bigger question of... So what happens in the very, very long run, or what happens in the long run going forward, particularly for the descendants of slaves, if suddenly property rights are completely up for grabs, or at least, well, not completely, but at least marginally up for grabs. If we can try to go back and undo history, then again, what happens, what happens to incentives to invest, say, or what happens again to long-run economic growth? I don't have a particularly satisfying answer for that, but I do think Robert Lucas is onto something when he, he says that kind of all the things that are at odds with good, careful economic reasoning is a focus on distribution rather than production. And given sort of the importance of long run growth, if we're talking about the possibility of sacrificing, say, a tenth of a percentage point per year in the economic growth rate in order to have a perfectly just distribution of wealth right now, well, then first of all, that's going to get that's that's going to be very costly over time. And then second, there's kind of a credible commitment problem as well, which is to say, okay, what's to say that, say, in 500 years, we don't decide that taxation was was sort of a horrible imposition, and therefore everybody everybody who's ever paid taxes has to be remanded or has to be has to be restored. Those are those are open questions, I think, and the kinds of things that we need to that we need to to consider. Again, just to just to use a personal example, I discovered several years ago that my that my one of my ancestors had owned slaves, and I would argue that to the extent that that slave's descendants can be identified, I owe them something hmm. because of the sort of sins of my multi-great whatever, and I presumably inherited something, I guess. Like whether whether or not that's that's sort of morally the case doesn't mean that practically the cure might not be worse than the disease. I, I wonder if we don't go down a difficult road. And a dangerous road if we if we talk about basically trying to undo history. And I say this is someone who's very sympathetic to the case for reparations. Yeah, I I think that is a, a large topic that's probably worth a whole uh, podcast episode at some point because it is I think a really thorny moral issue, but and one that's that's becoming quite relevant. Mm -hmm. Alas, because of the the breakneck pace of your book, I'm going to have to move on yet again okay. and sure. offer you a different challenge. But thanks for your thinking on that one because that is a that is a challenging one. Let's let's try out a different story about how the modern world got so rich. Okay. This is the story that I think is easiest to tell in an economic history textbook. And it's mm -hmm. the story of a kind of technology cascade. So first we get a series of agricultural revolutions in the 1600s with particularly in Britain and the Netherlands. You get innovations in seafaring and shipping and trade that results. You get steam power, you get assembly lines, insert a story about Adam Smith and his pin factory here. You get machine tools and some precision that gets added in very soon after. And then basically you're on the road to mass production and modern manufacturing. And that, that tells enough of the story that it feels like this might have just been kind of a lucky 
um, set of dominoes that just started toppling over one after the other. So why can't we say that wealth was really just due to this lucky confluence of technological innovations at the right place in the right time? I think the reason we can't say that is because that's not true. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say that that's a, uh, and, and, and it, again, it's entirely possible that, that McCloskey and I are, are, are completely batty on all of this. But you know, we have this this wave of gadgets that kind of sweeps across England and Europe and, and later the United States. And, and my one sentence reading of technological history is it's a story of Europeans being really proud of something and then discovering that the Chinese did it a thousand years ago. So most of these things that we think of as fundamental, some other civilization had done them previously. You know, think about think about the the uh, the word algebra, which comes from Arabic. Or think about sort of medieval, medieval Islamic civilization and some of the real serious scientific advances they were making without actually, again, having a, uh, without having a great enrichment. And then, of course, this, this raises the question of where exactly did all of, where this, where did this wave of gadgets come from? Why did we suddenly have this burst of innovation and in this particular place? There's, there's some evidence, or there's a little bit of debate. So you mentioned, uh, you mentioned ocean shipping. There's some evidence that, that technological innovation mattered, but not as much as organizational change and institutional change. Mm -hmm. And this is what Douglas North is my, my mentor and, and uh, one of McCloskey's contemporaries. One of the things he won the Nobel Prize for was in part his work on sources of productivity change in ocean shipping. So the idea of sort of technological determinism is nice, but it's not, I think it's, it's a very, it's a rather incomplete story. So yes, Europe got lucky, but not for this reason. We got lucky because, because of a confluence of ideas and not a confluence of specific technological innovations. Yeah. And I guess one way you can think through this sort of causal story is to say that if you get this culture right, I think if I'm reading your argument, it's that if once you get this, this, these cultural pieces correct, mm -hmm. then there's lots of different ways that innovation can happen. And what we're describing in, in this sort of technological story of economic history just is the way that it ended up happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that there wouldn't have been lots of other ways and that the, the originating thing was the, was the culture. Yeah. All right. So that's, uh, that's the, I think, the end of my counter arguments that I want to mm -hmm. throw at you. And so thank you for, for playing sure. whack-a-mole with me for a little bit. <laughs> Let's move on to a couple of other things that I just found interesting about the book. And one of them is that the book is just not materialistic. And I think this reflects McCloskey's writing in a lot of other ways and, and your thinking as well. Contrary to the title, getting rich, according to you guys, just isn't the whole story. Mm -hmm. uh, you argue that the modern liberal order is, is not just effective or yeah. pragmatic, which is a pretty common argument, but that, that it is morally at least okay. Right. And that our material progress is partly due to a moral progress. So let's dig into that a little bit. Can you try to pull this theme out of the book? What are the good, bad, or mixed moral, spiritual consequences of our liberal order? Well, so first, there's, there's a lot of empirical evidence to suggest that societies that are exposed to markets tend to be softer. Uh, yeah, that's actually, that's actually not, not, the, not the right word for it. Um, they, tend to, they tend to be more moral. They tend to be more trusting. They tend to have more of the virtues that we associate with being a good person or a, a, a good member of a decent society. 
And this is the part of the book where we kind of go full on Steve Pinker, saying that the enlightened, the post-enlightenment liberal era has been one of not just material prosperity, but but moral improvement, as measured by reductions in warfare, reductions in reductions in the probability, say that you die at the hands of another human being. You know, murder rates are are far, far, far lower, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So again, we we kind of dig into the data and point out all of the different ways in which people are life is is no longer solitary, poor, nasty brutish and short and again we have we have much greater we have much greater spiritual scope or much greater moral scope than we did previously for for prior generations if the question was scratch the ground or die then your your range of uh, your range for flourishing we'll say is, is somewhat limited things that again the modern world provides us with with a much a much broader spectrum of ways to do this and one of the data points that we point out is the increase in the number of playable guitars since the early 1960s, which of course you can use a playable guitar to you know, make terrible music. You can also use a playable guitar to make good music. Just because people have liberty and have possibilities doesn't mean that they'll use, that they will they'll use them all wisely. And indeed, we see a lot of examples where they don't. But they're they're there. And uh, I think ultimately that is that is what's happening. Our material progress again is in part due to. It's, it's due to the moral change, which we see, we come to see one another as sort of dignified agents bearing the image of God, rather than as sort of mere competitors for resources. So I think about my, uh, again, like walking my dog, for example, when my dog sees another dog, they don't think, you know, oh, look, here's an opportunity to divide labor and an opportunity to exchange. You know, like Adam Smith said, he'd never seen a dog exchange a bone for exchange a bone with another dog. They bark at each other and say, here's a, here's a rival, a competitor for resources. And I think first, our, our moral change in how we see each other in that sense helped to create the great enrichment. And then again, the great enrichment created more moral more moral and spiritual possibilities. So we can think about we can think about ethical refinement almost as kind of a normal good. I think there's a sense in which we have kind of built into our Christian tradition an expectation that that poverty and holiness go together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and there and there's probably a kind of holiness that certainly does attend poverty in that there are some temptations mm-hmm. that are rich per, kind of unique temptations that that come to us as we're rich. Mm-hmm. But I do I do appreciate the kind of wide scope yeah. of of moral concerns that you guys survey at one point or another in the book trying to make the case that this order of freedom that we take for granted in markets and democracy, it's not totally corrupting us, right? There's a lot of good stuff that comes out of it. And none of it is surprising, but all of it together does does make a, a fairly compelling case. Again, that's a, that's a much bigger topic. Mm-hmm. I think it was a welcome uh, layer that goes beyond the normal material case for liberalism. Yeah. Now, at a number of places, it feels like the book is right on the edge of becoming a full-on moral defense of libertarianism. But then then it stops short. You guys decided you just didn't want to do that. Or maybe that you and McCloskey part ways on this somewhat, and there wasn't full agreement, her being somewhat less libertarian than you, but I might be reading between the lines. Was that a strategic choice, or am I reading a difference between the authors correctly, or is there something else going on there? Yeah, so I think there is a lot going on. So first, you know, she she's not as libertarian as I. You know, I, okay. I, I, I'm I would say I'm a full on anarchist. You know, anything anything states can do, markets do better. You know, I I, I think there's a, there's a strong case to be made for sort of a stateless, violence-free society. And I, I I'm not as quick to accept the well. There's got to be some role for government. Sets of arguments. 
But our task, our task, I don't think, is to really dig into the minutia of liberal theory, but rather to say, by and large, making people free enough and dignified enough has made us richer, made us better, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not quite a full-throated defense of libertarianism, in part because we're, we're willing to, we're kind of willing to, to overlook some of the, okay, but what about this, but what about that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it, it, kind, kinds of arguments. It's, it, it wasn't really the time or place, I guess, to have these sort of detailed arguments about you know whether governments should provide schools or not. And there, I, I, I kind of see that on two levels. At a theoretical level, I would argue no. On a practical level, though, the question the question becomes: Well, given that they do, what are some of the better some of the better ways to do it? And and we wanted we didn't want to get bogged down in those sorts of details. And there were a number of points, and this is one of the point one of the the fun things about co-authoring a book like this, where I have a Southern Baptist background, for example. Deidre's a high church, high church Anglican, so there are some there there are some points in, in which we 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 had to there are some things we had to reconcile. And uh, that was a lot of fun. Well, and and one of the fun bits of the book is is the voice. It it almost sounded a bit like an after dinner speech. Like this wasn't this wasn't the thousands of footnotes, scholarly detailed argument. It was more of the everyone's had a nice dinner, they've had a drink, and someone stands up to give a kind of a fun overview. And and in the process, you guys you actually note in the text, well, McCloskey kind of falls here and I kind of agree with, with this over here. And that, that gives it a, a, a fine voice and it makes it an easy read and I appreciated that. One of the things that I liked about the approach that you guys took is that there's plenty to argue with all over the book, of course, but, yeah. but there's a sense in which you're trying to, to carve out a pretty big tent, right? Mm -hmm. but yeah. By not going full on anarchist, you, mm -hmm. you also get the benefit of saying, hey, there's a whole bunch of stuff that even like moderately progressive liberals yeah. and, and libertarian liberals, we can all celebrate mm -hmm. the broad thrust of liberal progress. And then I think it, it works a little bit better as, as a response to someone like a Deneen or, or someone else who's really pessimistic about the liberal order. Yeah. Now, let me finish up with what I think is probably a question that goes mostly to the heart of your most important argument. And I thought this would be a good place at least to end my, my questions for you. It looks to me like the core of the story that you're telling is there was a dramatic change in thinking about commerce. Yeah. And that paved the way for innovation, growth, and shared wealth. People used to assume that business was kind of a dishonest or a, or a dirty way to make a living. And then it became honorable in the 1600s and 1700s. And of course, this is the story that, that Deidre paints in, in far greater detail in some of her other books. And particularly this happened in England and the Netherlands. So can you talk about how that change happened? Can you paint that picture for people of the change in the way we think about commerce? The big thing I think is, can you give us a reason why you think that change is significant enough to have had this huge effect? Mm -hmm. That's a that's a that's a good question. Yeah, so we're looking at what's happening roughly from the 16th century forward to change the way that people read, write, and think about commerce. Our argument is not that the commercial bourgeoisie suddenly like woke up one morning and became more ethical. The argument is that people changed how they think about buying, selling, and innovating. The way that Deidre puts it in, in her other books and that we, we encapsulate here is that you had four R's that led to this great revalu that led to the revaluation of the bourgeoisie and therefore a therefore a great enrichment. Kind of a short version of this would be to say Europeans got lucky that we had this combination of 
reading Reformation revolt and revolution, as she puts it, where, so you have the invention of the printing press, uh, or the, the diffusion of the printing press through Europe, and a politically fragmented society, importantly, or a politically fragmented, fragmented set of societies, where it was very, very difficult to, very, very difficult to suppress ideas. So it became a lot cheaper to, it became a lot cheaper to produce ideas. It, it was very difficult to suppress them because it was, because we had a politically fragmented world. And as Joel Mokir argues, you had kind of a cultural and intellectual elite that all sort of shared a language. So you had the development of the Republic of Letters in this world where we have much, much cheaper reading material that's very difficult to suppress. Uh, one of the ways we put it in the book is that it was it became you know, the Pope could no more suppress the works of Martin Luther than George Lucas could suppress bootleg copies of the Star Wars holiday special. And like especially in the world of YouTube, that game is over. That's just that's just not ever going to happen. This combines, of course, and contributes to the Protestant Reformation. And during the during the last few hundred years. We begin to change how we think about, first of all, our, our sort of anthropology, what it means to be human. And second, our theology of happiness. You have revolt by the Dutch against the Spanish, and then revolutions that happen in England in the Glorious Revolution in the United States, in the American Revolution in France, in the French Revolution. Of course, not all of these are unalloyed goods. But again, a confluence of things that lead people to, again, at the margin, think that, well, you know, maybe business, maybe buying and selling is okay. Maybe there's more to life than just acts of piety or acts of, or feats of arms on the battlefield. Maybe there's more to life than just, you know, disemboweling others. Maybe selling them stuff is something that is at least worthwhile, or maybe coming up with a better way to solve a particular problem, again, is something that is, that's at least worthwhile. When I teach history of economic thought, I hit this theme, I think, most directly when we talk about the changing attitudes toward usury or, or interest, yeah. uh, charging interest on loans. And there, you know, the, the religious, the reformation, and so so the fracturing of religious authority is, is important, but there's just so many other changes. And you do see this really dramatic change happening between 1500 and 1800. Uh, and that's that's only one piece of the story you guys are telling, but it is it is powerful and interesting to see how those things change during this time period. I, you know, I think we've we've covered a lot here, but I do want to give you a chance. I heard you have another book that you're working on, and you know, if if this podcast is good for anything, it's pitching new book projects. So let's, if you want to say anything else about your book with McCloskey, by all means, so give us the last word on that, but also talk about your your next project so that we can look forward to that. So, so the goal of the book, the goal of the book with McCloskey was to write kind of something that you could read carefully on a flight from like New York to L.A or something you could skim quickly on a flight from Chicago to Birmingham and get kind of the gist of it. Those of you who know, who know McCloskey's work, she's written this three-volume trilogy, 2,000 pages of densely put comfort food for people like us, right? But yes. it is for people like my dad, say, really, really smart, reads a lot, but not an academic, right? Someone who buys books in airport bookshops and, and things like that, and who's really interested in ideas, but doesn't need the thousands and thousands of pages of, of everything. That's sort of who the book is for. If you run a reading group for students, that, again, you're part of our target audience. If you're someone who knows McCloskey's work and has thought, I would love to assign this in class, but again, I can't assign thousands of pages of densely footnoted, heavy-duty, grand unification theory of humanities and social sciences stuff, that, again, is kind of what we're, what we're going for. It's been a very fun book to write, certainly. 
and um, the reception has been the reception's been quite nice. I've been been pleased with it. Um, you mentioned the other thing that's kind of in the hopper. Uh, one of the things that I one of the hats I wear is I, I I do some work for the American Institute for Economic Research, and I've been writing regular columns and essays for them and for a bunch of other places for a long time. And I've collected some of my favorites into a book that we should be sending them soon for kind of final editing and publication called Strangers with Candy, Observations from the Ordinary Business of Life, where if you remember Alfred Marshall's quote, he said, economics is just the study of man and the ordinary business of life. And when I look around me, I see all of these amazing things that are all these amazing details that a lot I probably would have overlooked had it not been for, for econ. So be on the lookout too for Strangers with Candy which will, I think the Kindle edition will probably be five bucks, but that I'm hoping will come out sometime, probably not 2020, but my hope is early 2021. That's excellent. And I will link to other things that we've talked about. And of course, give people links to where they can find your book with McCloskey. And thanks so much for talking through all of this with us. I really appreciate the work and I really appreciate you spending the time with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. That is our show for today. Again, I am Stephen McMullen of Hope College and editor of the journal Faith and Economics. If you have any comments or questions, I would love to hear from you. You can always email me at podcast at christianeconomist.org. Remember to subscribe or follow us so you can see new episodes as we release them and to rate us on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find this show. For those interested in supporting the show, we welcome monetary donations. Just go to anchor.fm slash faithfuleconomy and click on the button that says support. 100% of donations go toward the programming of the Association of Christian Economists. No one associated with ACE is paid a dime, and donations are all tax deductible. Faithful Economy is a program of the Association of Christian Economists and the journal Faith and Economics. You can find out more about the association and the journal at christianeconomists.org, and you can follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn.